Good morning, church. Good morning. It's a great pleasure and blessing to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, would you turn it to uh, Acts chapter 2, look for verse 42, which we'll pick up there in a minute. If you've got your app, uh, you can scroll and open up to Acts and follow along with me in just a moment. Uh, it is a great privilege and blessing uh, to be with you here. This is my, actually my first time preaching at Generations in this embodiment. I got to preach at the old building uh, quite a few times a few number of years ago. Uh, and any time I get to be here and preach uh, in Jeff's pulpit, it is a tremendous honor and blessing. And so if, you, uh, if God speaks to you today, if there's uh, anything in the sermon that you find helpful, Jeff taught me everything I know about preaching. If I happen to fall flat today, I don't remember anything he ever said. Uh, so today we're going to continue our, our series called uh, The Church, and we're in the book of Acts working through this uh, idea that Jeff really introduced last week that uh, we're unpacking the things that, that perhaps we've forgotten, perhaps we've lost, perhaps we've even uh, misplaced in seeking to embody the church of Jesus Christ, that our goal is to be the church that Jesus calls us to be. And so we're examining the life of the early church to, to measure it against the life that we're embodying today as the church. And so I'm excited to be with you. The title of the sermon that I have today is, The Church is a Place of Grace and Healing. The Church is a Place of Grace and Healing. And so if you have your Bible open, if you've got your app to where you would, if you would indulge me, would you stand up with me for the reading of the word? Uh, this is something we do at home. We don't do it out of uh, tradition, uh, though we could. We don't do it out of ceremony, though you could. Uh, we do it out of reverence and awe for the word of God, knowing that when we open this book, it's not, it's not like opening any other book that we have in our lives. So when we open up this book, it's the very words of God. Amen? That when we take this book and we will read it and we will write it and we, when we speak it and when we share it, that God is on the move in our midst. Amen? And so believing that, we're going to... Give special attention to this moment right here, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God, God, reveal your word and what it means to me this morning, because I need it. I need it. And so I'm going to cover um, Acts, the end of Acts 2 and all of 3. I'm only going to read Acts 2 for you, and then I'll pray, and then we will get into it. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts." praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for all that you've done already this morning. God, we've experienced generosity and hospitality as we made our way through the courtyard. God, we've experienced worship and time presence in your spirit. God, we have heard about amazing things that the church is doing in our midst, God, with Team World Vision and dedicated time for prayer and new moms starting ministries together, God. But now we turn our attention to that which has drawn us here first and primary, and that is to bring glory to you through the examination and understanding of your word. And so I pray that you would help me, Father. You would forgive my weaknesses, my sins, and my failures. 
You allow me to deliver your word carefully and clearly to your people for your glory and their good. Would you help remove distractions, Father, those things that weigh us down, that keep us far from you, God, that seem to take our thoughts and just make them run. Would you give us clarity and focus as we gather as your people called out by your name. We ask all of this through the power that is your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Here's your main idea. As I mentioned, the church is a place of grace and healing. And these words are put in this order on purpose. Something that Jeff taught me very early on when we were preaching through the book of Ephesians was that grace always comes before everything else. So if if the church can embody anything, if the church can do any good, if if there can be anything that blesses anyone, anywhere, the first thing we must receive or the first thing that must be present is the sovereign grace of God in and amongst his people. And as we make our way through the end of Acts 2 and all of Acts 3 this morning, we're going to see that. We're going to see that the grace of the church is embodied and then healing happens. And so as we examine this passage, one you're probably familiar with, if you've uh, done any uh, research or study about church planting, this is like the church planter's favorite passage of verse, because this is the church he wants to plant until he then goes and plants it and realizes that where he's planting is not first century Jerusalem. You see, what we're seeing here is the embodiment of the first spirit-filled church. This is not a metric or a measurement we are to use to measure our own church by. However, it can give us some insight and some clues to the marks of grace that were present in the early church that can be present amongst us when the Spirit of God is present. Does that make sense? All right. Let's begin. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I'll make four points in this section. I'll call them the marks of grace in the church. If you have your app, uh, they're in under the notes section. But number one, the, the marks of grace of the early church... Number one is gospel teaching. This is a mark of grace that God has given to the church is that we have a gospel message. For bonus Bible points, what does the word gospel mean? It means good news. It means we have been given by God's grace a message of good news. Anybody need good news this morning? Absolutely. Right? I mean, we just need a cursory scroll through our social media feed to realize that there's something broken and wrong in this world. A cursory glance at the newspaper stand this week will remind you just how broken and violent we are. And so the first mark of grace we must never, ever, ever, ever forget that we have as the people of God is that we have a message of good news to a world that is full of bad news. And this is the first mark of the church in the first century. Right after Jesus commissions them, right after he fills them with the Holy Spirit, they dedicate themselves to the gospel teaching. 
The apostles would open up the scriptures, the Old Testament at this point in history, and explain and connect Jesus to every passage. And this was a mark of the spirit-filled gathering together. You see, a spirit-filled church is always based and rooted in the gospel teaching, connecting Jesus to the scriptures through his life, death, resurrection, ascension to the throne, sending of the Holy Spirit, and promised return. That's the first mark of grace of the church is that we must be a gospel-teaching people. The second mark of grace that the early church got to experience was fellowship. Fellowship. Fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia. And and, and I bring that up not to show off that Jeff taught me well, but to tell you that it means something. Fellowship can get lost. Because fellowship is not hanging out. Though hanging out is cool. I love to hang out. Hung out with some friends yesterday. Yeah, we did. But fellowship is not, all, it's, it's not just hanging out. No, no. Fellowship, true biblical fellowship is rooted in having and holding something common together. True. To be a true mark of grace in the church, fellowship must be that we have and hold something in common together. Now, if you've been paying attention, what is that thing that we have and hold in common together? It's Jesus, right? If you're when in doubt, just shout Jesus and we'll be good. It's Jesus. He is the thing. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is the thing that holds us together. Now, consider this. Outside of the people sitting right next to you that perhaps brought you to church or you brought with you to church, look across the room. Is there any other good reason why you would get up early on a Sunday morning to gather and sit in a high school auditorium with them? Probably not, if we were to be honest. And so if we're going to have fellowship, if the mark of grace in the church is going to be true fellowship, it's got to be because we recognize that our fellowship is rooted in something greater than our affection for one another, as strong as it is, greater than our affinity for something together, though that might be strong too. Think of like sports teams. No, no. The thing that binds us together is nothing less than our faith in the very Son of God. Amen? Amen. This is what we have fellowship in, our common faith that we hold together. That is what held the church together. The church then expressed this koinonia or this fellowship together in several ways. They would go to temple together. They would go to corporate worship together. And this says that they would break bread in their homes. So as we as express that in modern day church, think of our corporate gathering of worship every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as us going to the temple. And this embodying breaking bread and prayers. Now think of our community groups. Or our affinity ministries. When you think about uh, the service projects we do as a church, um, Gen Moms, Student Ministries, Grief Support, Men's, Women's Fellowship, all of those things are embodiments of this commonly held faith together in Jesus Christ as a mark of grace that God has given to us. Within this fellowship, they expressed generosity. This generosity was rooted because they understood in how generous God was to them. Number three, the third mark of grace in the church is worship. And again, this too was both in larger gatherings in the temple and in smaller gatherings in their homes. It was both formal in the Jewish temple and informal, but it's centered around the breaking of bread. That phrase in your Bible, if you want to underline it or highlight it in your app, that would have embodied the communion service. The church coming together to remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ through the breaking of bread and pouring of wine. The church worshiped together centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
after the preaching of the word in our service, after the, the gathering and fellowship of the saints, we come together and we celebrate communion each and every week as a mark of grace. You see, God does something here. We hold to not just a memorial view that says, man, we, we really remember what Jesus did, but we hold to a spiritual view that just as we come forward and receive this physical cracker and physical juice, and those physical things will nourish our physical body. We believe that done in faith, this meal nourishes your soul as a gift of God's grace. It can be debated, but I would suggest that perhaps even that is the high point of the service. When we're there, gathering in faith, remembering what Jesus has done for us. The early church lived into that as a mark of grace. And then finally, number four, um, and here I'll say this about the fourth marker. The first three lead to the fourth one. The first three lead to the fourth one. The fourth mark of grace or the fourth characteristic of grace mentioned in this text is witnessing or evangelism or if you like the modern day word, mission. The fourth mark of grace for the early church was evangelism and mission. We read this at the end of verse 46. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church understood that they were not to be an inclusive community dedicated to deep study and great fellowship and amazing worship, but that all three of those things existed to move the kingdom of God forward as a mark of grace. And so the gospel teaching, the fellowship, and the worship went outward, and God used it to save people, to rescue people. And truth be told, how could they do otherwise? How could they do anything else but take this gospel of good news outward? They'd experienced something wonderful, the ministry of God's son, the resurrection of the Messiah. They had been present in and with Christ together. Their experience with Christ compelled them to share Christ, to be on mission, to be evangelists, to share the gospel. Which begs a difficult question this week as I was praying and studying. If there's a lack of mission or evangelism in my life, is there a lack of a compelling encounter with Christ? Because it would seem to me that it, those Christians in the first century had such a compelling interaction with Christ that they couldn't help themselves but share what they had received from Jesus. I would beg to argue that a church without a mission is a church without a Christ. All right, that was my introduction. You ready now? Here we go. Because here, here's my thesis, is this idea that the, if the church is a place of grace and healing, if we get these things right... If we aim at being a gospel-teaching church with deep fellowship that is rooted in our common faith and nothing else, if we will get our worship and understanding of what Christ has done for us and we will be on mission, then we will have the great privilege and tremendous blessing of seeing real healing happen. I would also suggest that in this next passage that we're going to work through in Acts chapter 3, that we're going to see all four of these marks of the church present in the story that Luke is about to tell us. We're going to see apostolic teaching or gospel teaching. We're going to see fellowship. We're going to see worship. And we're going to see evangelism and mission. So if you get your Bible, Acts chapter 3, we'll make our way through this quickly to see uh, all of these things in action that result in healing. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. That is the ninth hour. 
At this point in the church's history, the church culture was dominated by Jewish influence. And so Peter and John, being Jews, were making their way to the temple, as was Jewish practice. However, they're missionally minded. They're going to the place not just to pray, but to pray and to bring Jesus to that place. Verse 2. And a man, lame, that means he was crippled, not uncool. And a man, lame, from birth, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. What we see here is a man who is crippled from birth, which means he has never taken a step. He's never walked. He's crawled, scooted, or been dependent upon the grace and mercy of his friends and perhaps family or neighbors to move him from place to place. Be praying for my family. Our five-year-old broke her ankle on Monday night, and we got to experience a little bit of this on Tuesday night, and it was miserable. It was just miserable. We bought her one of those little knee scooters. You'll see her out here in the courtyard later. Now I can't get her to slow down. Um, but for the whole day, she just had to be moved from place to place. I had to pick her up and carry her to the restroom, which she wasn't terribly happy about. Where's mom? I don't know, babe, but I'm here, so here we go. This man has experienced that not just for a day, but for the entirety of his life. And he'd be placed at the, at the beautiful gate of the temple. This was, the beautiful gate uh, got its name because it was, it was beautiful. That's why it got real simple architecture design right here. It was the, it was the most beautiful gate that they had. Uh, Old Testament archaeologists, or excuse me, New Testament archaeologists tell us that it was most likely burnished in Corinthian bronze. It, it was a beautiful gate. And this man would be carried there day by day, week by week, month by month, year after year, and he would collect alms. He would he'd be asking for money. And within Jewish culture, again, this is divorced from our modern day society. There was no social security disability. There was no uh, common programs. This was their social program to help. You sat at the gate and asked for money from those who were going into worship. Consider this too. Because this man was, was, was crippled, he would have been seen as unfit to enter into the temple which means for the entirety of his life, he's watched other people go in and worship his God and been unable to join them. So seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he's like, all right, there's a couple guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit them up and, and see what happens, see how this day goes. Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. There's a force that's not present in the English text there. Peter's like, look at me, fool. Like, look right at me, right here. We're going to get to the, why this is good news for this man. But you can imagine, this man's crippled. He's forced to beg to make ends meet. You can imagine his eyes are staring at the ground as he begs. You can imagine how difficult and how shame he must feel, unable to provide for himself or perhaps for those around him. And Peter, seeing him, says, no, 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 you look at me. You look me in the eye. As if to remind him that he is an image bearer of the God that created him. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive from, something from him. So now the guy gets excited, right? Okay, these guys, they've got my attention. They want something from me. They're going to bless me with something. This is, today's going to be a good day, I can tell. And Peter said, I have no silver or gold. Imagine the heart, the lame man's heart drops. Peter continues on, however, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The lame beggar would spend his days crying out alms, alms, as people passed him by going into worship, 
Peter and John stop. They interact with this man, and Peter gives him that which he has, the power of the resurrected Jesus. We must understand that people's primary and deepest need is spiritual healing in Jesus Christ. We must understand primary, people's primary and deepest need is spiritual healing in Jesus Christ. James and John could have given silver and gold had they had it. But they give him something infinitely more. We must never forget, we must never divorce the good news of Jesus Christ from the social and mission initiatives that we take as a ministry. And listen to me, I love Team World Vision. We've participated the last two years. It was one of my favorite ministries. But providing clean water apart from the living water of Jesus Christ will in the end accomplish not much or very little. Which is why we're a part of Team World Vision because they make sure they partner the gospel ministry with the good work that they do. People's greatest and deepest spiritual need. Peter knows this. So he looks at the beggar and gives him what he truly needs, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. And they took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is incredible. This man who was born crippled, who never took a step, instantaneously is leaping and jumping in the air. This is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is incredible. We miss it. We can read right over it. Immediately, we're told. Imagine the scene like the, movie, the Disney movie Bambi, right? right? Or your gym buddy on leg day, right? Like just kind of getting up and strengthening, and then all of a sudden he's walking and running and jumping and leaping. And where's the first place he goes, by the way, if you're paying attention? Into the temple to worship to go inside the building he's been sitting outside of his whole life, waiting to get in. What an incredible gift. What an incredible healing that happens. A miracle has taken place by the same power that has been displayed in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and at Pentecost. Verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. See, when God does the beautiful and wondrous work of healing people, spiritually, physically, it attracts wonder and amazement from the people around. We could stand up and give testimony by testimony in this room of the healings that God has provided and we would be filled with wonder and awe and amazement. When the world sees people transform, they are amazed by it. You know why? Because each one of them deep down is pursuing transformation. They're just pursuing it with the wrong means. They, they, they transform their bodies hoping that that will transform their soul. So they go to the gym. They transform their minds, hoping that it will transform the problem with their soul, so they go to psychologists. They get drunk, hoping that it will ease the pain and the brokenness within them, so they go to the bar, hoping that it will ease the pain and transform them from the inside out. They chase the high, looking to have themselves transformed and healed, but only end up far more broken. See, when God does this work, amazing and awe happens. 
So the people are called. They recognize that this is the guy who was the lame beggar who sat in front of the temple and day after day at the beautiful gate asking for alms, and they see. And so it's wonderful, it's amazing, and so they, it draws a crowd. When God does his work of transformation and healing, it draws a crowd. Recognize this. My second note. Those who were rejected as unworthy for worship in the old religion of Israel because of the gospel of Christ are found full acceptance in the name of Jesus, whether a lame beggar, an Ethiopian eunuch, a woman, or a Gentile. Those who were outcasts in the old ways are brought in through the spiritual healing that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, let's continue the story. While he, the lame beggar, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico or porch called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Naturally, the miraculous healing draws attention. The man and the crowds saw day after day, week after week, year after year, see him cry out, leaping for joy, and enter into the temple. And oh, by the way, this is a microcosm of all our story. We are the lame beggars healed and brought into worship of Jesus. Draws a crowd. Peter, being an opportunist and a good preacher, sees his, hey, I've got a crowd. Let's crack open a Bible. You know that guy? Yeah, he's sitting right there. So what we have here in the balance of Acts chapter 3 is Peter's sermon. And while not the majority of the point of of what I'm preaching today, we're going to read through it. I'm going to move through it rather quickly. But here's what I want you to see. Luke, the author of Acts, records this story because it is a living demonstration of what just he described in Acts chapter 2. And this final portion is the apostolic teaching. But haven't we seen fellowship? Haven't we seen Peter and John making their way to the temple and then encountering a lame beggar preaching the gospel to him and now he joins them? Why? Because they all three have a common faith in Jesus Christ now? Haven't we seen worship? Did this lame beggar once healed begins adoring and loving God and the first place he can go as a result of the transformation of Christ is right into the temple to worship? We've seen all of those. Haven't we seen mission? That's what we're going to see right now in Peter's sermon. He's about to bring the word. So let's make our way through this. Peter's sermon begins at the uh, end, of verse, uh, end of verse 12, beginning of verse 13. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. I've been preaching in some manner or another for 20 years. I have never started an introduction with, you killed Jesus. But that's what Peter does. We've got to recognize his crowd. He's preaching to a Jewish audience. And so the difference between his Acts 2 sermon and his Acts 3 sermon is the audience. In Acts 2, we have a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles. In Acts 2, it's right inside the temple or just outside, and he is preaching at a fully Jewish crowd. And what he does is he runs down and gives them a synopsis of the end of the Gospels, essentially the final account of Jesus' 
betrayal, trial, exchange for Barabbas, and eventual murder, and then glorious resurrection. But he begins by planting the blame squarely on them. He says, hey, don't look at this. Remember that guy that you traded for Barabbas? He's responsible. It is that Jesus, the author of life whom you killed, but God didn't make him stay that way and raised him up. We must understand, verse 16, I would say, is the key to Peter's sermon. All grace and all healing flows from our relationship with Jesus. All grace and all healing flows from our relationship in Jesus. Jesus gets all of the credit and all of the glory from this healing. Peter and John keep none for themselves. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, Peter says, as did also you rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter's first point may be, you killed Jesus and you're guilty, but like a good gospel-centered preacher, he doesn't leave us there. He moves right to the grace and mercy of God who says, listen, I know you acted in ignorance. God used your sin for his greater glory and purpose. Repent then, which simply means turn and change in a new direction. Walk away from where you're going and head back toward Christ and believe in Jesus. Reject your former manner and embrace Jesus. And then he gives us these beautiful the sermon's so thick. He gives us these beautiful pictures of what the gospel does because the gospel doesn't just heal us. Though that would be enough, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it if God decided the gospel of Jesus Christ would be the mechanism and means in which he would make this life on earth the best ever? That would be amazing. That would be enough. If he just healed us of the sickness of sin. But there, there's more that the gospel is going to accomplish that Peter gives us a brief kind of snippet of. Here's what he says. Our sins are blotted out. The great offenses that we've committed before God are blotted out with cosmic whiteout like they never existed. That's an old reference I just realized because we don't really use whiteout now. Um, but you get the idea. Peter says that there will be times of refreshing may come. You ever feel just dry? Like your soul is just brittle and dried out, and you're overexerted. Maybe it's like, if we were to take an example, like just being in the middle of a hot day after doing yard work all morning, and you just feel dried out and crispy, and how refreshing that first drink, that ice-cold drink is. Peter says, there's a time coming when our souls that have been pressed and compressed by the effects of sins will be refreshed by God because of Jesus Christ. That's coming. And then Peter, he says, all things will be restored. All things. All things. If this life has taken anything from you, God is going to restore it. All things will be restored to that which glorifies God. Verse 22, let's close up Peter's sermon. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers 
You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. This is serious business. Peter closes his sermon with a warning. He lays on them their guilt. He gives them the hope that is found in Jesus, and then he reminds them that this is a serious decision that they face. Verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I will close with this. If you have come here this morning, you are here on purpose. It's not an accident. It is because God has raised up Jesus Christ and he calls you to this place at this point to hear the good news that God offers grace to you and healing. And if you need that today, if you, if you came in broken, feeling guilty and shamed, feeling like you need grace and healing, you need Jesus this morning. And to become a Christian this morning, there are, there, are, there are two things you must believe and one thing you must do. The first thing you must believe is just like the lame beggar who had no power to heal himself, you are trapped and cannot rescue yourself. You are dependent upon the grace of another. The second thing you must believe is that God has given you that grace through Jesus Christ. That he is the friend that will carry you to the place of ultimate worship of God. And the final thing that you must do is you must dedicate your life to Jesus Christ. You must give yourself to him fully. There's no halfway. There's no part way. The lame beggar did not walk with a limp for the rest of his life. He ran everywhere he went because he believed fully in the name of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you want that same grace and healing that he experienced, you recognize your inability to save yourself. You recognize Jesus, what Jesus has done. And you give yourself over to him fully. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege to be able to preach to my friends, my brothers and sisters. And God, I pray that whatever things that I have said are not of you, God, or, or would distract from Jesus, would you fade those away, God, and would you cement and keep that which glorifies you and brings good news to Jesus. I thank you for Generations Church, God. I thank you that they are a church that is dedicated to gospel teaching, that has a deep fellowship based on their common faith in Christ, that loves to worship you and remember the broken body of Jesus Christ, and that is a church with a mission to see others come to Jesus. Would you continue to glorify yourself in their midst? We ask all of this according to the power and grace and mercy and healing that your son Jesus provides. Amen.